0: You're listening to the Peace Corner Podcast. In each episode, we talk to a different peace builder, working in a different region, telling a different story. To hear more, please click subscribe. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, and more. Darinel Rodriguez-Torres, who is the Executive Director of the Global Partnership for the Prevention of Armed Conflict. Thank you very much. Yes, indeed. To us, human security and our work on conflict prevention and peace building are two sides of the same coin. We cannot understand working on prevention or working on peace building without having human security as that reference point. Human security is so rich as a concept. It explains so many things that at the same time it's very hard, I think, to make it operational. And one of the challenges of human security in the next 25 years is going to be how we can make this concept operational. How can we move from the theory into the practice and say, hey, this is not only a theory, a theoretical framework. It's an actionable framework, and you can work on that. In that regard, I think the UN and other uh, multilateral bodies have that role to enable us to uh, have those conversations that will lead us to be more free from fear, free from want, and free from indignity. Thank you.
1: That was GPAC Executive Director Darren L. Rodriguez-Torres speaking at a UN high-level event about the concept of human security and the challenges and obstacles we must overcome to achieve it. To learn more about how this can be done and the role that civil society organizations must play, we spoke to John Rudy. A long-time peacebuilder with more than three decades of experience in the field and in the education sector, there are a few more well-equipped to discuss this topic. Hello, John. Welcome to the Peace Corner Podcast. Thank you. It's nice to have you here in the Netherlands. Are you enjoying it? I'm, I'm
2: very much enjoying your warm weather.
1: Yeah, it's a rarity in this part of the world, but nice when we have it. Yeah. Um, so let's, uh, let's dive right in, if that's all right. Yeah. Okay. So can you still remember when you became interested in peace building?
2: Uh, you might have to go back all the way to my childhood. I'm a middle child, so I was either making conflict between my sister and my brother, or I was solving it. Uh, that's I say that a bit in jest. Fast forward to my years of my early years in working in uh, a refugee camp in Somalia. Um, trying to do development work in Southern Africa, realizing that conflict was actually, and destructive conflict and violence, were undoing a lot of the work that we had been hoping to do in the development world. And so um, I, I think I kind of pursued that question, you know, so what's going on here? Why Why is there uh, these dynamics, these social, political, economic dynamics that are uh, that are breeding such such destructive uh, conflict, and um, so I think that you know it's been a gradual uh, a gradual winding to that. Uh, I didn't start out as a peacebuilder. Uh, certainly, uh, right after my uh, my high school years, I was an electronic technician. So. I think uh, being a generalist is, is a pretty important thing.
1: So what encouraged you to pursue it as a career in that sense? What, um, was there well, a prompt for the change?
2: Yeah, I, I think that, um, you know, kind of pursuing that is a natural out, outgrowth of, of looking for the connections between things. And, um, you know, that's one of the, the things I've come to understand is how interconnected all things are. And so uh, I think the piecework is a logical... Uh, kind of end point of, of many of the things I've done in my life. And um, and so, you know, I guess essentially I would define what I do is trying to reconnect things that, you know, kind of violence has, has pulled apart. And uh, I think we call that peace building in, a, in, a mm. gen- in its most generic sense.
1: Bit of a metaphor with electrical engineering there yeah. as well. <laughs> right, right. Thing, yeah. Um, so you've worked in peace building for over two decades. You've been involved in projects all over the world. Actually, a lot in th- three decades. Three yeah. decades, yeah. So. Um, including a lot in Southeast Asia and yeah. Africa. I right. Kind of back and forth yeah. between those two you were for yeah. a while. Um, it, what do you think has changed in the world in terms of violent conflict and peace building over that time, especially recently?
2: It, it seems to be that it's, it's more pervasive that... Um, that violence as a modality for change um, i think on the one hand humanity is learning nonviolence is actually gets you what you want in terms of change better on the other hand we have all these cultural forces that are pushing and and reminding us daily that violence is is the only game in town in terms of change you know whether it's whether it's computer games whether it's it's movies whether it's um, you know the examples that we have, and I think what's changed here is is something we're understanding through brain research. You know, and that's completely out of my pay grade. But, um, but I've been reading enough about it and enough about what it does to the brain, what violence does to the brain, to understand perhaps as everything else has gone global in the last years, uh, so has trauma. And so, and so maybe the ruts we are in uh, as a uh, human species, in terms of responding uh, violently, is actually part of of, of the changes in the brain, part of uh, you know the accumulated trauma that humanity is and has experienced. Um, you know, they're telling us that that uh, that uh, memory is passed on through genetics now. What does that mean if if I come from a group of people who's been traumatized, you, know, how is that imprinted on my DNA? Again, out of my pay grade, but, but this is hard sciences that, that's beginning to tell us this. And so back to the connectivity piece. You know there's a lot of things we're learning uh, from science, from, from social science, from neurobiology, all of these things. And peace building is starting to take all of this into uh, into consideration and network and connect uh, in order to work on some of these wicked problems we have.
1: Mm, that's a very interesting way of looking at it. Yeah. Not a viewpoint you hear often, I suppose. Maybe time to start thinking a little bigger. In that <laughs> a sense.
2: little bigger, yeah. yeah. And, uh,
1: so as a senior fellow for human security at Alliance for Peacebuilding, an organization with a vast network of peacebuilding organizations, including GPAC, that aim to tackle issues together, why is it that working together is so important in this field? What is it that, as you spoke of these connections, yeah. how does Bitbridge and yeah. these connections help us?
2: Well, you know, I, we talked a little bit about about how, uh, how some of these very specialized sciences or uh, social understandings or political understandings um how those things they are specialized so i as a generalist peace builder right uh, really need help from some of the other disciplines some of the other sectors to to address how how complicated and embedded in systems these are and so we just we need each other and it's in it's in needing each other and then uh, developing the fora, if you will, to to be able to network and work together on on, on various things um, that we find new new pathways forward, new avenues. Mm-hmm. Let me give you an example here. Uh, I just got done teaching an artistic peace building course with another professor at the uni- at the college that I was was teaching at. I don't have. M- many artistic bones in my body but this guy was a professor of music education and together we worked on a course that that was so wide-ranging we did dancing and we did you know drumming and we painted a piano and we went out and stuck our feet in the soil and put our hands on the tree and you know the students were able to see the breadth of connectivity to between art and peace building in a, it, it, experientially in a way that they couldn't if it was just me doing artistic peace building or you know my coworker um and and we demonstrated that these seemingly disparate things and of course in the peace building field art and peace building have always gone hand in hand but uh, but perhaps in the minds of the students, they go, what? You know, how is this like, what are these connecting? Well, let us show you, you know, yes. and, and, and it's in that connectivity that we, uh, we discovered many new things. And even us as facilitators of that course. Yeah, because uh, I think running. it'd be
1: very close minded for anyone in any discipline to say they couldn't learn more. Right. Even about their discipline from bringing other sources of knowledge and information, even how it doesn't matter how wide ranging it is. Politicians, especially. I think. I think, <laughs> that, I think there's was, a there's yeah. a group of people. I think it was uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson. I saw uh, oh, a scientist. Yeah. He was saying, "Why is it? Where are the engineers, the scientists, in politics? The peace builders? Like, right, right. Having a more interdisciplinary look at politics because it's mostly lawyers and career politicians at the moment. And yeah, I yeah. feel that's one area we could begin to change. Yeah. At least. Yeah. Great. So. One of the more difficult problems with peacebuilding is often its lack of visibility. Maybe something you uh, tackled here, working in uh, with other disciplines, making it extremely hard to sell what is being done. Why? Why is this such a challenge, and how can we how can we change that?
2: I think inherently, and I'm going out on a limb here, but inherently, peacebuilding should not be a profession. As we understand connectivity, I think. Every discipline, we should go out and, and this is for younger people, right, go out and study the thing you're passionate about and add communication skills and add uh, the, the, the mindset of what you are doing to enhance the greater common good in your community and address those persistent social problems. So so perhaps it is that guys like me are dinosaurs right you know i stumbled into this i call it my profession but it inherently it's an unstable profession because uh, the very reasons that you mentioned Mm. it's it's, it's not a profession that anybody should be doing. I long for the day when I don't have to travel the world, but I can stay home and bounce my grandkids on my knees, which I don't have yet, but I will. you know, and, and, and not worry about these global problems where people are hungry and there's injustice and there's rape of, of forests and, and resources. Um, so, does that, I mean, does that. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it must be uh, one of
1: the few professions where ideally you work yourself out of it. And,
2: and we long for the day when, yeah. when none of us has to do this.
1: Yeah, know? absolutely. Um, yeah. So, one of your, um, the big areas you've worked in in peace building and with us here at GPAC is human security. This is a concept you've been involved in a lot in your yeah. career, especially in recent years. So, before we go into the specifics, could you just what human security is and how it differs from national security?
2: Yeah, and it's, it's so basic, it's almost, uh, it's, it's almost simple, although in its simplicity, of course, is its complexity. Freedom from fear, freedom from want, and freedom from indignity. And in those three things, I think we can find most of the injustices of the world when those are missing. Um, and, and that when you, when you begin to frame security in terms of, well, let's just say, let's take the third one, dignity, Right, The lack of dignity, how many times have I heard people say they don't respect us? I was sitting under the, the trees with the, in, the, in the Mindanao Philippines with the 105th base command of the Moro Islamic Liberation Front, and they were telling me, those people in Manila, they don't respect us, and I thought, wow, there it is. It's this inherent disrespect, and what is it a disrespect of? It's the dignity of each person. Uh, making a people group it's what any of the isms racism sexism classism uh, elitism is the inherent disrespect of the dignity of anyone that is not in that group and so um, you know most of the wars are fought over that uh, ideally I I mean not ideally but 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 at their base And and so, uh, you know, and it breeds the other ones, uh, you know, hunger and fear, right? Hunger is basically at its, um, you know, freedom from want. Well, there's tremendous hunger in in the world today. Um, And so, you know, if you look at the root of a lot of that, there may be violence at the root, there may be uh, um, some kind of injustice, there may be some kind of marginalization. All of those things, though... Uh, have a component of dignity in them, or indignity, if you will. Yeah. So, I think reframing then uh, the concept of what security is—national security—is involved, and and I would I would say, uh, lest I sound too dogmatic here, uh, it it takes a balance of uh, human and national security. Hmm. I think in our world today, we're we're pretty focused on uh, national security and its its cousins. Um, national security says, well, what's good for our borders? What's good for our economy? What's good for our... And, and you put anything else in there that doesn't start with people first. There's an assumption, I think, on the part of people pursuing national security that this is good for people. But it, it is not a formula that starts with people first. And I've often thought in our political discourse sometime, especially in the U.S., you know, we, we have... Uh, we are very we have de- deep chasms between of understanding between sides i wondered if we start if we we to say this uh, you know this move is good for it's good for policy it's good for our side in in the political discourse if we actually ask the question is this good for my neighbor hmm. we, we might again we might start with a different discussion we might go in a different place than if we were uh, um, if if we're party first or, or you know political
1: group first so absolutely i mean i think the u.s is a very interesting example because it's a country with tremendous resources and everything that it does have and the amount that is spent and what well, the amount is used on military spending i think it's more than half of the gdp or it's it was at some point. and it's, it's 800
2: plus billion dollars a year out spending every other nation
1: combined I think. Uh,
2: almost combined yeah. it's it depends on who, whose statistics yeah, you're looking yeah. for but it's it's close, if not. And the Institute for Economics for Peace is telling us annually we spend what 14.3 some trillion dollars cleaning up violence, mm. responding to violence. You know, uh, these are obscene figures in a world today when we really know how to do things better and differently. Um, now, what you might argue, well, we're not. If, if we knew how. Um and that's where the peace builder comes in yeah now we we have some we have some some thoughts here on this, and uh, we're trying to assert those as much as we are able
1: absolutely so coming back to human security uh, for a second before I started my internship here at GPAC, I was studying my master's in Leiden nearby, and uh, one one of our classes on conflict was about human security or the concept of it mm-hmm. and they, uh, one of the questions put to us is is the concept of human security just hot air o- on the argument that it's difficult to define? And some of this, my colleagues were believe that it was, I think, from more more academic standpoint. And I even think my professor, she was leaning more towards that way, but I genuinely was like, just because a concept is difficult to define doesn't invalidate it. And that was what I was trying to uh, put across. Maybe you could help me articulate that for when I go back after my internship <laughs> so I can win next time.
2: You know... Security is one of those words, like justice. It's hard to define, but when you don't have it, you know it. If I don't have, if I'm walking around the streets in fear, I don't have security, all right? Hmm. So it, it's very stark in its absence. And to sit in a classroom and pontificate, whether Absolutely. we have it or not.
1: <laughs> yeah. Everybody here does. I'm definitely t- 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 <laughs> use some <laughs> expletives <laughs> here now. <laughs> yeah. But
2: so, so, so part of... When we talk about security, or justice, or some of these hard to define words, we actually would do well to have a conversation with the people who are telling us that they don't have it.
1: Mm.
2: Freedom from want. Who are we listening to when when we talk about food security? Freedom from fear. Who are we talking about when they say, you know, we could use enhanced security. Are we talking to militaries who come into a place and tell people what their security needs are? And this is why I love working with GPAC. We have these tools like um, the, the multi-stakeholder process. In the larger human security uh, handbook, you know, the, the, the curriculum that's written, a multi-stakeholder process is, hey, in order to figure out you know, what security is, we need to invite the people around the table who are expressing insecurity. And hear their voices before we make any decisions about and and be that human or national security and so um, freedom from dignity you know it's one of those things when you are indignified you know it when I have to decide hmm, are you indignified yeah. without asking you I may or may not come to the, the same conclusion as you mm-hmm. so
1: Nobody really gets to the call on other people's indignity, <laughs> unless they're a child. Apart from that, I think it uh, should be left up and to them. And yet, the
2: children are giving us—they're giving us some clues as to yeah. when they feel indignified.
1: Absolutely. So. Um, recently, our our executive director here, Darren El, spoke in at a high level event, a UN high level event in New York, about human security. And one of the questions he put forth is. challenge of human security and how can we make it operational how can we move it from theory into practice and i wanted to put that to you and see what your thoughts were
2: yeah and again i would go back to this this resource of multi-stakeholder processes who is making decision now and and how do we move them to more inclusive processes you know a lot of civil wars are spawned because of the lack of voice and and again you can trace that back to indignity right where are the processes with which people have the venue to speak uh, and to be heard? It's not just speaking, it's being heard, because speaking happens in all kinds of ways, right? Like, if it's not about voice, if it's not about, you know, and ultimately the, the ability to, to, to speak to a system or uh, a framework that, that, that they feel is, is completely wrong, there's something wrong. Uh, and and uh, so, so I, I, I wonder if getting at human security involves, and, and maybe we build this up from the, from the ground up in our communities, in our neighborhoods, uh, by saying, wow, do I even know my neighbors? Do I even know what their concerns are? And, what? Um, and it may even go back more fundamentally to our ability to listen. Uh, do we have the skills to hear? Especially across some of these divides that that uh, that fragment communities, I don't know maybe that was a, a a long kind of response to that question, but
1: it's a difficult um, one I was just wanted also are there any areas where you've seen examples of this working on the in the field
2: yeah um let me think here uh, so there are um Again, I'll go back to back to the Philippines. Um, mm-hmm. You had structurally uh, a number of peace processes. So the government structurally had said, "Look, we have these conflicts going on. We're going to make this uh, office of the presidential advisor to the peace process." OPAP. but that's you know it's kind of a cabinet level. Uh, it has a whole infrastructure, and yet, how does that actually work? At a ground level. And so you, you've, you've had fits and starts with, with that, understanding uh, what some of the issues are. You have had um, basically track one, track one and a half negotiating peace, but really it has had to have been a, a listening process uh, a, through a number of iterations in order to figure out, well look, if, even if we sign a peace agreement will will people on the ground adhere to that will they even know about it and so um i think they've been fairly successful um in in kind of pulling together some listening processes and and coming to that conclusion and also in the in the track one process they've invited outside observers they had a uh, uh, international contact group which which were outsiders kind of resourcing listening and so it, it, it's not just one side talking to the other, but but you have these these uh, track two facilitators kind of uh, resourcing the process. So um, that's that's one of the examples I can yeah. I can think of.
1: That's great to see that. So within this uh, human security area, to stay on it just for a little bit more, what is the what is the role of civil society organizations? What's the best part they can play here?
2: I think amplifying the voice. Um, when when there's been one missing, you know, civil society has connection right down into local communities. Um, also, and often, civil society does have connections up to track two, track one, and so it forms a bridge. It forms a connectivity piece with very uh, very rigid constraints uh, about how they operate, how they keep trust in all sides, and so. Uh, you know, a lot of uh, what we call traditionally the security sector needs to understand those constraints if, uh, if they're going to be working with civil society. Um, and you know, I've been in places where civil society has been fairly weak and, and so the missing element there is government tries to do everything and of course government has limited resources so, so that's not possible. Uh, civic groups often arise where there is space. To kind of fill the gaps, and um, and when it works best, they coordinate with each other. When it works worse, they're in competition for the same resources, and I've mm-hmm. seen seen that as well. So, uh, you know, civil society is that uh, in many places that safety net where uh, where the voices are aggregated and then spoken into the the levels that are that are deaf to those. Um, and um, I can't imagine a world without civil society because, um, uh, yeah, it would be, it'd be a world devoid of, of a feedbacking mechanism, I think, in, in society.
1: Even that, less uh, level of a playing field than it yeah, is now.
2: Yeah, and, and certainly a population who um, is lacking some of the basic freedoms, I think. That are necessary for dignity. Mm.
1: uh, Yeah. So it keeps coming around to that. That's is that your main uh, take of the three? One fear, but indignity being.
2: Well, yeah. You living in fear. uh, Living living with hunger. Look, if I'm hungry. there's not a lot else, you know, and you yeah. can go back to Maslow, you know, and saying, Look, it's, uh, what's my next human need? Well, it's the next breath, and none of us has a contract with the universe that we can actually have the next breath, so, yeah,
1: um,
2: let alone clean water and, and food. And, I and suppose, in a sense, and,
1: fear and want, hunger is easier to point out, they it's are more basic, afraid, yeah, but indignity is harder to. Close in on, and,
2: and perhaps it's why you know the band-aid effect is is so easy. Like if somebody's hungry, yeah, let's mobilize, let's do this. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of uh, addressing the longer-term needs, indignity is that longer-term, protracted kind of um, maybe root cause that that may be connected uh, yeah. to to the other two.
1: Not being able to supply your own food is an indignity in itself, yeah. it's not something should, yeah. someone should have to go through. Yeah. Well, thank you for that, John. It's uh, been very insightful. Just for this for this season, we've just decided to add a couple of questions that we ask each peace builder, yeah. and mm-hmm. hopefully get a, we can compare and contrast their answers to see how different peace builders see similar issues. So let's start off with, what is something you hope to see achieved in the world of peace building globally or locally within the next year? Or five years, if you will. So the next year.
2: I want to see continued cohesion and intersectionality. So in, in the US, we have a lot of movements that have <laughs> rose up in the last couple of years. Um, and, and they are getting the intersectionality of, of their work with other work. Climate change, for example. Uh, a lot of poverty issues can be traced to climate uh, change. You can also connect it to to a very unsustainable economic global economic system. Um, and so so if, whether you're working at economics or whether you're working at uh, you know some kind of social cohesion, whether you're working at a kind of political reform, to begin to look at the intersection of those issues, the connectivity, the ways in which you can can uh, join forces, join, you know, shoulder work shoulder to shoulder with someone else. Uh, I've seen that, and I, I, I'm really, um, I'm really excited as to how that is coming together, uh, actually globally. I heard a speaker once talk about how uh, humans are kind of like uh, antibodies. We see something wrong in the world, and we organize and we go to the, uh, the thing that is, is wrong or the thing that it's, it isn't working right, and we, we're like antibodies uh, in the illnesses of, on the planet. Mm-hmm. Well, we have the global challenges now with, with climate change um, that we really have a pretty short window if we're going to even, even capture this. And, and so I think climate justice, uh, inv- environmental justice, is one of those overarching issues that, that everybody's going to find uh, some intersection with. Um, shifting our energy paradigm has got to be at the top of the, of the list of
1: things. Yeah, I believe it's also believed among some scientists and geographers that climate wars might become a thing soon. Water wars, fighting for fresh water and that kind of thing, especially in areas prone to drought, could become a new source of conflict
2: which is really ironic because, and this is why I say energy paradigm has to shift. We, the sun irradiates this planet every day with more energy, you know, dozens, if not hundreds of times more energy than we use in a year on this planet. What, you know, why are we pumping dead dinosaurs out of the the ground and, you know, and and making a greenhouse out of this little blue ball? so so shifting that paradigm and, and the other thing is sun is democratic right like uh, you get as much as i do you yeah. know and and then with depending unlimited- where we live <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah i'm no. from the north of england uh, right okay you are in arizona <laughs> yeah you know but it's unlimited energy which will allow us to desalinate which will allow like it'll free up almost every other resource on the planet hmm. um and so, and and, and and it's free. It's just out here, and we know how to do it. Yeah. No, and, and yet we've got stuck policy, and and people becoming wealthy off the old paradigms that uh, that we got to figure out how to yeah. how to help along.
1: Do you see a cohesion between the civil society organisations on the climate change and the conflict um, side of uh, operations beginning to merge in what they're doing at the moment, or is that just something you're hopeful for?
2: I think I think it is. People are making the connections. Yeah. You know, when I when I I teach a, a lot younger folks than myself, and uh, I'm very uh, I'm very hopeful when I see just how quickly they piece things together and yeah. say, yeah, of course this is connected here, and this is how we can do it. And so,
1: so almost like education works.
2: <laughs> is that what that's called? Oh, thank <laughs> I've you. Heard, oh, I've heard. I learned something. Today. <laughs> yeah. Right. No.
1: Uh, great so finally if you could debunk one myth or common mixed misconception about peace building what would that be
2: Yeah I, I so I've taught nonviolence a lot and and it's utility of nonviolence you can approach nonviolence from uh, principally like with a deep held set of of values that you bring into the work of nonviolence uh, like king, uh, like king did um but n- we're figuring out that, that actually nonviolent change is the most effective way to get what you want. Uh, because, because violence just creates all these overtones of problems and issues and trauma and whatever else. In, in nonviolence, you're actually, you're actually building the very institutions and foundations that you want in the movement. And so dispelling this myth that, that nonviolence is rolling over and let people do anything they want but it's actually a very, very powerful and effective tool for change. Um, I know this is a completely different direction we've been talking about, but it's one of those things that I've spent a lot of time thinking about the dynamics of violence and, and studying nonviolent change. And I wish our writers and our, our movies, our screenwriters and, and our science fiction writers would would. Uh, help us imagine nonviolent change as the basis of of their books rather than oh there was some human dystopia and then we you know what I mean mm-hmm. um, but start out with the fact that we got it right in terms of social change in ter- in terms of choosing the methodology that was most helpful and constructive and then creating your imaginary worlds and your books and your movies based on, uh, some of these principles, I—that's—I uh, don't know.
1: Uh, maybe, maybe there's a lot of other things
2: I'd like <laughs> to change. <laughs> maybe, maybe we only it it's so
1: right me. that the aliens wanted to take it. <laughs> <laughs> it's always
2: that way. The aliens want to want to do with us, what what we've done to each other on this planet <laughs> yeah, yeah. for years. Well, let's change that paradigm. And, and some some writers are actually coming together and 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 doing that. I want to see a lot more
1: of that. Another example of connections being made hopefully.
2: Yeah.
1: So great. Well thank you for being here today, John. I was happy to be here. I really had a good time here. The rest of your trip. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Peace Corner. If you're interested in hearing more from us, please click subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you might be listening.